Hello, yummy mummies. Welcome to Beyond the Bump, a podcast brought to you by Jade Caldwell and Sophie Pierce. This podcast is targeted at mums, mums to be, and women in general. And gents, feel free to have a listen too. It's a place to have real discussions and ask real questions, no matter how hard, with honest and authentic people. The aim is to have you feeling lighter, more supported, and more understood after every listen. Now, we can't promise that it will always be kept PG, so please be mindful around little ears. Here we go. Hi, hello, and how... I'm not even going to even go any further than that. Hello, not Sophie. Not bloody song again. <laughs> I know. It's hideous. How are you? I am good, but I miss you. I we miss need to paint you. a bit of a picture for our listeners. Paint it. Normally we see one another at least once a week to record, but you were taking two weeks off. We'll get to that. And so we banked up a couple of recordings and we always do our intros via correspondence because we like them to be current things, things that are happening to us just before the episode goes live. So I'm going to paint where I am. I'm currently sitting in my car. In my garage while Nick, my husband, has the two girls inside trying to keep them as quiet as possible because this was the last chance we had to do it because then Nick goes away for three nights and I haven't seen you for two weeks and I cannot wait to hear about your trip. But I miss you and I cannot wait to see you next week for recording. I know, I miss you too. And I think what the, the main thing is we usually are even like texting daily, like nonstop about certain things that we've got to do or we're going to post or we've got to record or upcoming events and because it technically was my two-week holiday there wasn't really much to do and then I went away to Tassie but I actually didn't have two weeks off we were supposed to go to Melbourne that never eventuated obviously so we had the most beautiful and fun trip ever because it has now been... break it to us lightly though because no, this can't. episode is a pediatrician speaking about newborns so you are talking to people who are probably in the newborn phase who the thought of a trip away <laughs> with their significant other without seems children like many 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 moons away so break it to us lightly but also Tell us. Turn us okay. on. Come on, let's go. No, well, I feel like I can say this because there is light at the end of the newborn tunnel and it is giving parents out there who are sleep deprived going, what the F have I done? Some hope that this will happen one day. And you know what? This is our second time that we, in eight years that we've actually ever gone away together without our children. I'm very lucky that I have wonderful mum and dad that can do that for us. So we went to Tassie, we went to Dark Movo, it was a festival that was on at the time and we had a friend down there that was showing us, you know, all the ins and outs of Hobart. We went to Mona, which was an incredible museum. Honestly, just to be able to wake up in a hotel and not have anyone jumping on you. I mean, my husband didn't. No, I'm just joking. Or I'm not. Or but I am, but or not, I'm not joking. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, not sorry. But it was just, it was awesome. We had brekkie and now I won't start rubbing it in. But, yeah, we came home. I miss the kids dearly. It was just a really nice time to be able to have you know, breathing space. And I said to my husband, for once, like in these 48 hour period, I'm actually not having to think for anyone or do anything or make any decisions. And I I didn't, and I felt so good. It actually So was- you managed to fully 
Like oh. you got out of that mum brain mode. Yeah, and you know the biggest thing? It's always parents that end up travelling on a plane without their children for the first time or second time or even the hundredth time. You never not appreciate your own chair. If kids are screaming on the plane, you don't mind. You're just enjoying the fact that you can literally stare at the back of someone else's head and not be I look back to when I used to whinge about long-haul flights and I'm like, you literally got to sit on your own, sure, for 12 hours, but, like, you could read, you could sleep, you could watch a movie, you could watch six movies, do whatever the fuck you want. I'm like, what, what, what was I ever complaining this about? Is that the- sounds like I would take a long-haul flight to just take a long-haul flight back if it meant I got just 12 hours of sitting in a seat. 100%. But I think that is what gets frustrating when you become a parent and your friends who aren't yet parents, when they sort of complain or they're like, oh, I had the worst sleep or, oh, I've got to do this, you get this, you can't help it. And it's not their fault because they're not a parent, so you can't blame them for mm. not understanding. But when you hear people, whinge about having too much time or oh god someone cough next to me on the plane you just honestly go you have no idea (laughs) what it is like at all and any lows of the week or just all highs well I've got a I actually know you know what I don't have a low I'm still actually I wanted to thank everyone who messaged about their anxiety um, levels of late because I had some really lovely messages. Even our beautiful editor Lara messaged me, which was absolutely gorgeous. And it's just nice to know that we're not alone. Everyone suffers from time to time. So it was nice to know that. I'm still, you know, chugging along and trying to balance myself out and it is what it is. But, um, yeah, besides that, I, I can't say that I have many lows this week. We would have already have been to the incredible fundraiser that is happening this Saturday for Simone Thomas and family. So that is my major high of this week, being able to go and support her family and send my kids wild and they can eat, they can play, they can jump on jumping castles. I've got my husband on barbecue duty. He's already freaking out about that. Not that it's hard to put a sausage on a barbecue, but anyway, we're off to sell raffle tickets today before the event. So I hope it's a a wonderful day for everyone and Simone gets the support that she needs. So yeah, what about you? So good. Now I'll start with, oh my God, I had them. Oh. Where did they go? Into your mum brain. Yeah, well, that's probably, so my low of the week (laughs) is probably the reason why I can't remember what I was going to say is that Goldie's sleep has turned to Shiza. So she used to be a fantastic sleeper. And then when she stopped feeding, we started giving her a bottle at night and we got into a habit, but it wasn't a problem. So, you know, I'm all about something's not a problem until it Mm. is one. Like you don't need to fix something until it's a problem. But we got into the habit of putting her into bed with her bottle and she would go to sleep with the bottle. And look, she was the easiest child to put down. So we were like, oh, who cares if she wakes up once during the night looking for the bottle? 
if if she's that easy to put to bed, it's worth waking up once overnight for. But it's just been slowly creeping up and up. Like, and you know, she's nearly 18 months and I know all kids take different lengths of time to sleep through the night. And, you know, I'm not trying to freak out any newborn mums out there that you're, you know, creating bad habits, but you know, she is nearly 18 months. And it, I think it's ridiculous for a kid of her age to be needing like three bottles in a night. Like it's a fucking litre of milk or something. My- <laughs> milk than her and so it just got to the point during the week like she just had some shocking nights where she would wake up at like 2 30 in the morning and just be on like ready to go and you know we were like is she cold is she this is she that so we've um just spent the last couple of nights when she wakes up we just like go in and like cuddle her and you know give her hugs and give her a rock and pop her down and pick her back up instead of giving her the bottle but my high is that already in two nights I've seen vast improvements in her sleep and she managed to go to sleep by herself last night without the bottle So it's kind of one of those things that when you're in it, you're like, oh my God, this sucks, but I can already like slightly see the light. So that is a high as well. Well, that gives me some hope because Yumi is two and a half and she's gone into this um, real clingy stage of wanting me and she wakes up with this. It's not just like a mom, it's like this deathly like to the point where the whole house will wake up and she picks up her pillow and comes into our bed and the exact same thing as you it wasn't a problem I actually like that she's our last child and I don't mind having her in the bed totally but now it's getting to this point that it's earlier and earlier and then she rolls around and she pokes my nose and says nose and then cheek and then eyebrow and I'm not getting any sleep so now it is actually a problem so I'm not sure if I'm I, I'm almost too scared to do the it is about two to three days isn't it when you sort of train yeah and get them back into a routine again so I do but I'm, I think we should focus on that like, you know, it's not a problem until it's a yeah. problem because I was one of those mums who I was like, I will never let my toddler be in bed with me. Same. And Poppy is now in our bed every single night. But it's actually not a problem. She falls asleep yeah. and she does not wake up until the morning unless she has like a night terror or something. But I'm like... Would I rather her in her own bed and us having to resettle her like every two hours or is she like, you know, she's not going to be there forever. But then I totally understand some people like cannot have a child in their bed and I get that too. So I think that it's, you know, one of those things that when she was younger, I was like, she will never sleep in bed (laughs) with us. And now it's just like, this is just the way it is. And also with the milk thing, and I did it for, I think it was Billy because she was mad on milk. And we, instead of going cold turkey, we just started slightly diluting it with water yeah. and she was like, oh, this is hideous and ended up going, I don't want it. <laughs> and that was good. Yeah, we've tr- we've offered Goldie warm water a few times and she's just like, this sucks, <laughs> yeah. piss off. What is this? It's like handing a water over a wine. Now, do you have a rude or fabulous for us? I do. I cracked up reading this one. I thought it was absolute gold. So let me just get it Yes, we got sent in so many rude or fabulouses and so many mum hacks this week. You're all on bloody fire. You all are. And keep them coming because we're popping them on the file and we are going to be saying them nonstop. So here's one of them. Hi, ladies. Good job on having a very excellent podcast. I didn't need to add that, but I just thought I would. (laughs) (laughs) My three-year-old has been hitting me with all rude or fabulous remarks today, so figured I may as well share my embarrassment rather than endure it alone. 
I squeezed into a very small Zara changing room this morning with him and my one-year-old in a pram kindly and loudly stated that those undies are pretty clean but your bum is still in my face. I thought we were done until he asked me, why is your hair so sweaty? (laughs) I guess I'm washing my hair tonight. Apparently he still loves me and we're all good. Let's just say good on you for wearing clean undies and that's where we can stop <laughs> because I can't say that that's always the case with me. No. Can you imagine if he'd said, ew, like you've got skitties on your undies or something? But no, that is so funny. I love the honesty of kids. You fabulous. have to just Bloody fabulous. Just laugh. And what about a ultimate mum hack? Honestly, it was hard to choose because there were so many this week. Mm. But this one I think is great because this is something that I have trouble with. And actually, my husband has even more trouble with. So I don't even think this is a mum hack. I think this is just an adult in general hack. So this goes out to everyone. All right. I'm excited. Ever since I had kids, I've started forgetting friends' birthdays. You know, the friends or family you wouldn't necessarily call, but you'll always text. Thanks, baby brain. Even if I remember in the lead up, I'll often forget on the actual day, Mm. which makes me feel terrible. I've started using the schedule text feature on my mobile so I never miss a birthday. That way the recipient as well as me get a pleasant surprise text (laughs) because I'll always get a thank you reply. It's thoughtfulness in a different kind of way. I could never tell anybody I do this, but I can tell you guys, what do you think? I think that is gold and I have just, I didn't even know that was a feature and I've Googled it and there's countless articles on how you can schedule text on your phone. That's such a good idea. And sometimes I have thought, it's probably a good idea also, you know, sometimes you have thoughts in the middle of the night and you're like, oh, I can't text them to ask that question because it might wake them up. You could like schedule a text for like 8am and then you won't forget in the morning and you're also like not waking them up. I think that's brilliant. I actually have a story on that just quickly. I was up with the kids at like 4.30 and I, you know, that's where all your really bright ideas come through. You're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to do this, got to do that. So and then by 5.30 you're rocking in the corner like, someone let me go to bed. Party <laughs> and ninth coffee. No, I message the chick that washes the dogs, pet washer, whatever, groomer. Mm. Anyway, I messaged her and said, hey, lovely, just um, letting you know that we would love you to come next week if you're available. And I get a text back going, in capitals, is this a joke? And I go, sorry? And she goes, do you have any idea what time it is? And I thought she was joking going, oh, you know, like one, if you've really got a problem, put your phone on silent. But I know some people can't do that. But I was like, oh, so sorry. I'm just up with the kids. So I sent it through. She was so furious. I was like, oh my gosh. And so I had to change people. Pet groomer. Yeah. Because she was so unhappy with that early text. So. Okay. Well, you need scheduling text. (laughs) I've Googled it Because you text me all yeah, the know, time at three in the morning. I know, and I know you're <laughs> one to have your phone on, so I'm like, oh, I shouldn't do this. No, no, so- it's on silent. It's okay. Okay. Yeah. All right, we're on. That is a great tip, great hack. That is such a good mum hack. I love it. I forget the all human the time. Hack. I forgot my dad's birthday once. I'd spoken to him multiple times throughout the day, and then at about 6.30 p.m., because all my family lives in Melbourne, but I live up north. I got a text message from him and it was a selfie of the whole family out for dinner. Oh and my I was God. just like, 
and they were just pissing themselves because I called straight away. <laughs> but let's get into this week's episode. We chat yes. to Dr. Golly. He's a paediatrician, just an all-out legend. Yeah, we asked him He's all your looking, questions. Just if you needed a visual. <laughs> Because that's important. It is when you're listening. I think Shade has a crush, actually. Yeah. I hit on him a few times throughout the episode, but we really hope you enjoy this one because we absolutely loved it. Yeah. And if you'd like us to get him on to chat about any other specific baby topics, just let us know. I'm joking. Jade, stop. We're cutting you off. Enjoy. <laughs> Enjoy. Dr. Golly, thank you so much for joining us on Beyond the Bump today. You are our first paediatrician that we Woo! have had on the show, which I'm not sure why or how it's taken us this long to actually speak to a professional about <laughs> babies, but, you know, here we are. Can you start off thank by you. telling us a little bit about yourself? A little bit about me. Oh, you put me on the spot. It's always so the hardest I, question, that one. It is. It's the one I haven't prepared so I've been a pediatrician for 15 years and um, I have loved every minute of it. It will continue, hopefully, like that. I've had plenty of practice with three kids of my own. Well, I should say three and a half, so I've got a little puppy as well. Oh, <laughs> yes, definitely include that puppy. All right. Well, the similarities are amazing with uh, with puppy training and and. And having babies. Well, don't they that. say pediatrics is like veterinary medicine a bit? Because you've just got yes. to kind of guess a lot of the time. <laughs> <laughs> you got to go with your gut feel a lot, I think. What are the ages of your children? So my kids are eight, six, and four, and three months. <laughs> the fair one is three months. But can't forget the puppy. <laughs> I know. How good. Well, we've got you on today because we want to kind of chat about some, I guess, common issues or common themes when parents take home their little ones for the first time. It's so hard to know what is quote unquote normal, especially with your first child. Like everything is new. You just get given this baby, you take it home. It often cries a lot, whinges, poos. And there's no instruction manual. That's and there the isn't. So can you please, just in an hour, it's just a simple task, <laughs> just be our instruction manual? That'd be great. It'll be my pleasure. Where to begin? I guess from the very, very first moment that a baby is born, and I'll attend a baby delivery every single day at work, the most common remark that I hear from new parents is, wow, I did not expect them to look like that. And it's often not a very um, happy look on their face because babies do come out looking quite strange. They've been squashed in that womb and, and, and pushed against the pelvis for a very long time. So probably the misshapen head is the most common thing that I get to begin with. And then you can have lots of different complications, for want of a better term, with regard to the head. And my advice is that as long as there hasn't been a major issue, most of those head shape anomalies, they resolve really, really quickly. You can get bruises and what I call hickeys and swelling, especially if there are instruments being used to help in the delivery, but they go away remarkably quickly, as do all marks on the face, so faucet marks or scratches and bruises like that. The skin on the scalp and on the face of a baby is so, so fragile that it damages really easily, but it's got such a terrific blood supply that it heals really quickly. And often parents will wake up the next day and say, oh, my God, my baby looks completely different mm. to how they did yesterday. And that's just because of the rapidity of that change. Wow, it's incredible. I think it's funny that the moment they're born, even if there are no bruising scratches or anything, they do have that really squishy, swollen-looking face and exactly. everyone straight away is like, who does it look like? Who does it look like? And you're like, <laughs> they're just like a, a pillow. No, like, but I love that you actually give birth yeah. and then grandma and grandpa come in they're like, oh, yes. 
Oh, she looks exactly like some throwback, <laughs> like from, I don't know, whatever. And you're like, how? And then the next day, oh, no, 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 she's changed. She's definitely looking like blah, blah, blah. And you're like, just let the child breathe. <laughs> Funny you mentioned that about the, the puffy face, because that is another common thing that parents will talk about, especially in the first few days. And you know, people talk about the second night after a baby's yes. born, about how, how challenging it is. Well, that's around about the time that the kidneys really kick in and the babies start to urinate. So they lose a lot of their fluid, a lot of that puffy appearance, and that's why they get so hungry. So those two things tie in at the same time. So because the kidneys are working, they're losing fluid, so then they're getting thirstier and that kind of thing. That's right. That's that's also why they drop weight from their birth weight because a lot of that is the fluid that they're weighing out. Wow. And that's why they change their appearance so rapidly. Yeah, there you go. That's really interesting. Now, should everyone have a paediatrician? No. My mum has this famous story. She delivered my two older brothers in South Africa and in South Africa, you have a paediatrician no matter what happens, healthy baby or not. And then she came to Australia and asked her obstetrician where I was born, who are we going to have as a a paediatrician? And the response from the obstetrician was, why are you planning on having a sick baby? And it, it, look, it seems to be a cultural thing and a, and a health system thing. You don't need to have a paediatrician, but a lot of people really like that. It's more common in the private system, but also in the public system. People enjoy having someone who specialises in children and especially in that newborn period, but it's really up to you. And can you tell us what the difference is between an obstetrician and a paediatrician? So the obstetrician is everything to do with mum during the pregnancy and the delivery. And then the moment the cord is cut, it's now enter the paediatrician and we deal with everything to do with the baby and very little to do with the mum. So there's a tiny bit of overlap because, for example, if an obstetrician's helping to deliver a baby and the paediatrician is not there yet, then perhaps the obstetrician might step in and and help that baby with the first few breaths of life. So there's a little bit of overlap. And there's also a fair bit of overlap because obviously, as you can imagine, I get a lot of breastfeeding questions and and questions about mum's health as well. So we do sort of step over the fence every now and then, but, but by and large, as soon as that cord is cut, that's where our jobs begin and end. And I guess, do you guys work a lot together during the pregnancy? For example, if there was any concerns on a scan, is an obstetrician meant to, I guess, know what those concerns could mean? Or would they then chat to a paediatrician who would then chat to the parent or parents about what that could mean? That's exactly right. We do that a lot. I'll do what we call antenatal counselling. So that will be where I'll meet with parents where mum is still pregnant and there's something being diagnosed and they're worried about it or they, they want to know details about how it's managed after the baby's born. That's quite common. And so after a baby's born, the cord is cut and maybe a paediatrician there is to have a is there to have a look at a baby. What are common things that the paediatrician would be looking for in that time? The short answer is everything. Right. Um, when, we do a, when we do a baby check, we check everything literally from head to toe. Every system, every inch of that baby's body. We look for abnormalities. If we see one, we look for what it might mean, if it's isolated, if it's potentially connected to something, and you can have any number of problems. It's quite, it's less common now because the scanning when during pregnancy is so advanced. So most of the problems we know before the baby's born, but there may be mums out there who have a baby with very few scans. There are some times I've had three cases in my career where a mother came into emergency and delivered without even knowing that she was pregnant. Wow. And that's I love those stories. Really, 
yeah, you don't know what you're going to get. And that's where it really puts hair in your chest because you, you have no idea what you're dealing with and you just have to manage it as you see it. And what's an APGAR test and is it done worldwide? It is done worldwide. So those are special scores that we give to a baby. It's the, their first examination and it happens when at certain intervals after a baby's born and it refers to their colour, it refers to how much they're crying, it refers to their breathing, their heart rate, um, how they are responding to you and their muscle tone. And that's a pretty good marker for how baby's going to do in the first few minutes and hours of life. And we refer back to that if there's been any complication after birth or if the baby needs a bit, a bit of extra support or resuscitation to get them going. So it's very handy. My mum actually introduces me at 33 and says, hi, this is Jade and she's a nine out of 10 on the APGAR. So <laughs> I'll have to tell her that it only is for the first few you, minutes of life. I was going to say you peaked <laughs> and then it all went downhill <laughs> downhill from there I always say I peaked at around 16 and went downhill from there but you peaked at <laughs> three one, minutes one and five minutes and then you went downhill from there shut up Sophie that one score that you can never ever get a 10 out of 10 for is color so um one of the other things Sophie that you mentioned uh, that parents will ask about straight away is the color of hands and the color of feet so because they are the furthest thing from the heart and require the longest distance for blood to travel, they'll often remain blue or purple. And that can sometimes last for weeks. We call it acrocyanosis. And it's the reason why you can't get a perfect score on that APGAR test because you cannot possibly have pink hands and feet. Her hands and feet are pink now, everyone. Well, they are actually oh, always cold. They are always <laughs> cold. And so if a baby had, I guess, unfavourable APGARs, you would keep a closer eye mm. on them than a baby that was born with good APGARs. That's exactly right, exactly right. And quite soon after a baby is born, a few vaccinations or injections are recommended. What are they for and, yeah, why are they given so soon after birth? So it differs between which country you're from. In some places, for example, in India, they would give the BCG vaccine at birth, whereas in Australia we don't offer that unless you electively choose to have the BCG vaccine, which can happen at any time. Is that um, that's for TB, Australia, right? Tuberculosis, tuberculosis yeah. Right, yeah. So if it's not a major public health problem in that country, they simply don't vaccinate for it. But if you're going to travel and spend a fair bit of time in that country, they would recommend it. In Australia, we give vitamin K as the first needle. That's not a vaccine. It's just a dose of vitamin, and that's a very important vitamin in the clotting cascade, so it helps us to stop bleeding that shouldn't be happening. That's something that we give straight away after birth. And then the first vaccine that we offer as well, which some people choose to delay, but the first one that's offered is the hepatitis B vaccine. And then that forms the first part of the vaccination pathway, which continues at two months, four months, and six months. And why is Hep B given so quickly? Like, what are what are the risks? I guess that that mean that it's recommended to get it straight away. Well, hepatitis B and C are the two types of hepatitis that can go chronic. So they're very dangerous in terms of the fact that they are potentially lifelong illnesses. They're also easily caught. And it's one of those things where we know it's safe to give babies. We want to make sure that they're protected from day one. Yeah. And the vitamin K, I believe you can get that in an oral form. Is that right? What's the That's difference exactly right. in efficacy between getting the injection versus getting the oral droplets? 
So if you're giving an injection, you can give it just once. If you're giving an oral dose, it has to be done over a few days and three times. The ability of your body to draw up through the gut is not as impressive as it is if Mm. you do an injection. So over the course of treatment for oral vitamin K, you do get similar coverage to that one dose of intramuscular or injection to the muscle vitamin K. So they're both perfectly acceptable, but if you're looking for the the maximum amount of protection as quick as you can, it would be through the injection. And it's interesting, um, we talk about APGARs, we talk about babies that sometimes need a small degree of resuscitation when they're born. At this particular hospital where I work, we offer to give the injections quite early, like within a few minutes of life. So if a baby requires resuscitation, one of the most important things you can do is what we call tactile stimulation, where you rub them and you basically stimulate them and try to wake them up to prompt them to Mm. breathe and cry. One of the most effective (laughs) things you can do is use a needle. Stab them. Stab them. I mean, it sounds really mean. I know it sounds mean, but it is so effective if you're using as as part of, we're not using it for resuscitation. God, guys, you guys sound hectic. (laughs) If you're going to give it anyway, it makes sense to do it at that early stage. And if it helps the baby to wake up quicker, then it's fantastic. Because I guess it's frowned upon if the pediatrician comes along and unnecessarily just stabs the baby to get it crying. So you may as well make it a worthwhile stab. (laughs) Now, Dr. Golly, let's start with poo-poo, please. That would be where you would want to start, Jane. What is normal? (laughs) How many per day? Let's talk about the first colour that comes out because if you haven't read a book and you don't know any information, it can be quite a shock. It's Vegemite. (laughs) <laughs> it doesn't taste like it. Not that I would know. Really? What does it taste like? No, I have no it's idea. It's just a bit less salty, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so that's called meconium. That's the very first poo. It's like the lining of the gut that a baby has while they're still in the womb. There are some babies if they get distressed during the birth process mm. or prior to being born, they'll actually do that meconium poo before they're born. But most babies will do it shortly thereafter, usually within the first 24 hours, sometimes within the first 48 hours, they'll do that. And they'll do multiple, multiple meconium poos, which literally looks like Vegemite. It's not quite black, but it's a very, very, very dark brown. And when you watch it coming out, it literally looks like tar, like yes. pouring out of their bum hole. It's quite it a is, sight. I kind of right. like it. It's really sticky. It's yeah. really hard to clean. It's like gap. But, um, Remember it's gap? like gap, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And That's it's finite. So once you clear it out, there'll be, you know, half a dozen or so poos where it's completely clear. And then we have what's called transitional stools where you move to the more common newborn type poo consistency, which someone once described to me as like nutty peanut butter, which was the last time that I ever ate. <laughs> nutty I was bad. Why, why are you ruining I all know. our toast spreads? <laughs> you okay. Vegemite gone. What, are you going to talk about Nutella next? <laughs> no, I would never do that to Nutella. <laughs> <laughs> now, what are the signs that a baby may have a milk protein allergy or any other intolerances? Yeah, great question. So probably the first sign would be would be the poo. So going back to the poo would be mucus in the stool. And that's a hard thing to pick for someone who, who hasn't seen mucus in stool before. But basically it's like a baby who has snot mixed in with their poo. So it can look um, stringy. And sometimes I tell parents it's quite a bad visual and I apologise for ruining your podcast, but I tell them to squeeze the nappy together and then open it to see if you get those stringy bridges. And Mm -hmm. if you do, that's a sign that there's mucus. I can see the look on your face, Sophie. I'm so sorry about that. No, my husband has this thing where he, this has got nothing to do with his poo, but he's just like, 
His sneezes are so oh, no. over the top and he never ca- – I know this is bad to talk about in times of COVID but, like, I swear he's hygienic, but he never catches it in time and it can, like, string from his nose to, like, honestly his belly button and I'm just imagining that is exactly what the natty looks like as you open it up. My pleasure, Nick, for calling you out on the show. Let's move right along. So if you see any of that mucus, then it's time to think that the baby's intolerant to something. If it's a breastfed baby, then you'd be looking at something obviously in mum's diet. And the more extreme version of that, if you have enough inflammation that there's so much mucus, it it can lead to blood. So little specks of blood in the poo will tell you that there's an intolerance there. And some babies poo, like newborns, poo many times a day, but then some babies can go days without pooing. When either way should a parent be concerned? If the baby's really unsettled, that's a reason to be concerned. But generally speaking, if you're talking about a breastfed baby, they are almost never constipated and it's normal to poo seven times a day up to one in seven days. And you don't want to be the one to clean that poo. That's I was going to say, is one in seven days, is it the same amount of poo that just yeah. all comes out at once? Yeah, that's that's what's called a poonami. That's where that term <laughs> yeah. comes from. Okay. And if it's a formula-fed baby, what would what should you be watching out for? So, look, that goes out the window if we're talking about a baby who's having formula, whether it's one formula bottle or an entire diet of formula only. Then you can have babies that become have loose stool, have constipation and everything in between. So... Really, it comes back to my message, which is a constant feature of my messages, regardless of the topic. Look at the baby. The baby will tell you if they're constipated, if they're uncomfortable, especially if it's after a meal, if they're really, really unhappy. And last of all, if they're pooing pellets, then there's a big problem and you need to soften that poo or look at changing that formula. When I mix fed my children, I really liked not the fact that they were a little bit constipated, but I liked the fact that you could use this, you know, the bicycle leg system to try and move their their gut and get the poo out. And if you actually did push the, I don't know if this is actually even legal to say, but if you push the the legs in, you could see that their sphincter would relax <laughs> and poo would come out. And it was just, it worked. It was a trick. So take it on board. It happens quite frequently that babies will not be pooing often, but they won't in fact be constipated. So constipation doesn't have to do so much with the frequency, but more with the consistency. Mm. So babies are sometimes quite inefficient at pooing in in that they know they need to, but they don't know how to. And they can squeeze and draw their legs up and flex every muscle in their body but they can't quite get it out Mm. and so when that happens I tell parents that you've got to draw their attention to their anus yes and the way that I do that is that I get a a tissue and I twist the end of a tissue so it becomes a non-sharp spike and when they're doing that squeezing you just take the nappy off and you you tickle them there and it causes them to focus on that area and then they're much more likely to result in a poop. That is a great tip. That is great. You're basically a paediatrician, Jade. You were nearly there. Look, every time we do host (laughs) professionals, I do take on board a lot and I end up, I've got a lot of hats on at the moment. (laughs) What are the best things to manage a nappy rash and Mm. when should you be concerned versus just your run-of-the-mill nappy rash? Okay, so the best way to manage a nappy rash is prevention because you have to think about what's causing it. It's almost always due to what's contacting the skin. So if you start to see the diaper area becoming a little bit red, that's the beginning of a nappy rash and you want to be putting barrier cream on. And the most common thing on this topic that I see 
are parents who are just not putting anywhere near enough mm. barrier cream on. So you have to understand that barrier cream has got no therapeutic quality to it. It doesn't do anything to moisturize or nourish the skin. It's, it's literally like just putting Glad Wrap on right. your baby's bottom. So you have to put loads and loads so that you cannot see through it to see the skin. If you can't see the skin, then the acid in the wee can't see the skin either. Uh, so if there's no barrier, there's no barrier. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. Got it. Exactly right. <laughs> and then the other thing is to ask why it's happening. And often it's due to the acidity of the urine. So you might want to change nappies a bit more frequently, but sometimes it can also be a sign that there's an issue with the poo. So lactose overload, for example, you see highly acidic poo coming out very frequently. And then you can have such bad nappy rash that it can actually break the skin and becomes really, really sore. That's when you need to get it treated. What's the deal with talcum powder? That's not advised anymore, is it? No, we don't. We don't recommend it. It doesn't really serve a terrific purpose and it's actually quite dangerous for parents in terms of the fact that once you use it, it sort of aerosolizes and then we breathe it in. So it's toxic for our lungs, toxic for baby's lungs and doesn't do wonders for the diaper area either. Sounds like a great product. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Now, unsettled babies, it's a huge topic. I think especially for new parents, it's so hard to know what is a normal amount for your baby baby to whinge versus something that could be an issue. How do you think parents should approach an unsettled baby? God, how long does he have? Yeah. Have you got a week? I I won't stop talking about this. And can you please give us the cries? We want to know what cry (laughs) means what and when to respond. And what to do and, yeah, then our baby's fine. Yeah. Well, this all began with my first child who's now eight and a half and she's just magnificent but she was really really unsettled and I was a a pediatrician and I was actually going down the path of becoming a pediatric cardiologist and then had this horribly horribly unsettled baby and cut a long story short I became completely obsessed with the concept of unsettled babies and why it happens and how we can fix it and so it's now become my specialty subspecialty area for want of a better term so I really could talk about this for hours and hours. Let's um, do a quick one and then can we get you back another time and you can do a whole episode on oh, an unsettled with baby. With pleasure. I guess my the, the most important thing that I want to tell your listeners is that babies are excellent communicators and they are going to tell you when they're unsettled, when they're unhappy, and they're almost always going to tell you why. And it's in fact us who are the bad communicators. You know, we talked about puppies before and the similarities with puppies and and babies. You know how puppies and dogs, they can smell your fear. They can smell how you're feeling. Babies are exactly the same. See, we complicate communication with sarcasm and nuance and and our humor. I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Babies are far more, more, they're more honest and they'll just tell you exactly how they feel at that particular time. And as long as you are good at interpreting their communication, then you'll find the reason for them being unsettled. So for example, a baby who, you know, if a parent comes in and tells me that their baby is healthy, is gaining weight, but feeds really frequently and, you know, pulls off the breast after three or four minutes and is constantly grunting and has a lot of of farting and they're unsettled and, you know, scrunching their face up all the time. Well, translation, I'm not being burped enough. So if you can pick the subtle signs, then you can actually find the reason why your baby's unhappy. You can treat that reason, prevent the problem from happening, and then get into this nice rhythm, which sets you up for a good routine. And then the whole 
process just becomes happier and easier for every single person in the family. So let's go with while we're on that topic of gas and burps and having to do it. What are your thoughts on what you were saying before about burping and what it will actually do? I think there's no bigger myth in this area, in this space, than that comment that you don't need to burp a baby. Mm. It, it just it blows my mind when people say that. I'm not sure where it comes from, but I think it might come from the fact that when you are in hospital in those first few days, some messages need to be left in hospital and not taken home with you. So in the first few days of life, babies are incredibly insensitive. They're not sensitive to noise and light and mm. even internal stimuli. So if they've got wind pain, they're not going to be that bothered by it. But as time passes, fast forward two weeks, three weeks, and then especially six weeks, they're far more sensitive to it. So you do need to burp a baby from the very beginning, but they may not be that distressed by it. Mm. They're also very difficult to wind in the first few days, but once you get home, they become easier and easier to burp as they get older. It's almost like a trick, isn't it? It's like you give birth and then they're like really well behaved and then you get home and you're like, oh, this is a dream. They're latching, they're doing this, they're doing that. And then you do one week hits and you're like, oh, Exactly fuck. right. So you, you absolutely have to burp a baby. You have to burp a baby with every single feed, whether they are breastfed or bottle fed. Even if you're giving them medicine, if they're drinking that down, you need to burp them afterwards. And without question, the most common reason, the most common cause behind colic that I see is the baby that's not burped enough. And usually that comes from the parents who thought that one burp was enough or who were told just like you were, incorrectly told, you don't need to burp a baby. So it's absolute nonsense. And by far the most common thing that I see is the unsettled baby who's, who's feeding frequently because they're not winded adequately and not winded frequently enough. So your baby may need to be burped halfway through a feed. That doesn't mean the feed is over? No, in quite the opposite. In fact, if you get gas out, you're making room for more milk to mm -hmm. go in. So the more you burp a baby, the more they're going to feed in that sitting. And by definition, the fewer sittings you're going to need to have. It's like Brilliant. a can of Coke. <laughs> burp and you can have some I more. never drink coke. I have absolutely oh, no yeah, idea what you're yeah, talking yeah. about. No, I don't. So you're saying that sometimes parents may burp the baby once and that's not enough. How do you know how many burps they need? Or as you say, it's just by looking at your baby and they will give you the signs that they've got all the gas out. That's exactly right. There are some babies who will do two enormous burps and that's it. There are some babies who will do 10 small ones. So it's not a number. I tend to recommend, and you'll see in the program that I've got, I recommend a period of time for winding, but I don't say you have to get two burps during that time mm. or you have to get 10 burps. It's just devote time. As long as you spend feeding, that's how long you should spend burping. And you'll get a feel very, very quickly within one or two days how many burps your baby needs to get completely bereft of wind. And you mentioned colic briefly. What is that and how does it differ from reflux and when should parents be concerned versus just a baby that is whinging normally for a baby? Okay, so colic is completely different to reflux. Reflux is a medical condition, a disease. Colic is more like an adjective. It doesn't really serve a purpose other than to acknowledge the fact that a baby's unsettled. So when someone says to me, oh, my baby's got colic, it's like saying my baby's unsettled. Okay, so what? Let's fix this problem. It's mm -hmm. not something you just have to suffer through. So reflux is another big issue of mine. It's, it's overdiagnosed. It's chronically and tragically overdiagnosed. 
to the point where, in all honesty, I I think that I would diagnose colic. And you can imagine how many newborns I see a year, like more than a thousand a year, I would diagnose it maybe twice a year. Whereas I get people coming in to see me and the first thing they say is, my baby's got reflux. And then you examine the baby, you dig a little bit deeper with the history and you find they've got anything but reflux. Mm. And on the topic of reflux, I have to say this, this concept of silent reflux. That was my next question. <laughs> oh, I'm glad we have a chance to talk about it because it doesn't exist. It's like telling someone they've got silent cancer. It just, it's, it's completely absurd. So tell me it, what, tell me what reflux is. Like what are the symptoms of like proper reflux and not proper colic? gastroesophageal reflux disease is a baby who is dangerously underweight, who is vomiting blood, who cannot keep a drop of milk in their stomach. And that is a baby that needs to be in hospital. Note to self, so never can, say your baby has reflux <laughs> again. So you can imagine why it's so frustrating for me because I see these babies, you know, who what who should be called what they really are is happy spitters. These are the babies who spit up milk constantly, but that also means that they burp really easily because things come up easily. And these babies are beautifully settled. And then parents think that there's something wrong because they're spitting milk up. It's just a bit unfortunate that the word reflux means, Mm. you know, liquid going backwards. And then people talk about, you know, looking at their baby and misinterpreting their signs where they see the baby that's grunting, that looks uncomfortable, that has that discomfort written all over their face. And then they say, oh, it must be silent reflux. And the truth is it's all comes down to an exceptionally good advertising campaign from the companies that make reflux treatments who targeted GPs in the 60s and 70s. And we're still mopping up the problems as a result of that. So my middle child, I thought she had reflux or colic. I'm not sure which one and probably neither. And she was happy if she was upright and I would walk her around the block and then I'd sit down and the moment I would sit her down or go on an angle, she would scream blue murder and I, she wouldn't sleep. She wouldn't do this. And I felt like I was doing enough of the upright and the burping. And until I gave her a dummy, it's kind of where I, I don't know if I forced it on her. So she just gave up in the end, but (laughs) I gave it to her and she was like, okay, that's okay. So what is that? It sounds to me, firstly, the dummy, I don't have a problem with dummies intermittently, but it sounds like it was just being used to mask her unsettled behavior, which is totally reasonable. Mm. You have to do if you can't get to the bottom very loud. But it's usually not reflux. And if a baby is what we call positional like that. So falls asleep happily when upright, falls asleep on you, no problem. But the moment you lie them flat, they scream. It's almost always due to wind discomfort and not due to reflux. With these babies, if you put them on their stomach, which we know not to do now because of the SIDS risk, those babies would sleep. No problem. This is why this whole concept of unsettled babies is so foreign to our parents' generation. They think that we're all snowflakes, but the truth (laughs) is, is that we're now lying our babies on their backs because we've almost eradicated this issue of seeds because of poor sleeping positions. And now we have to deal with the consequences of that. So we've done wonders from a public health point of view. Unfortunately, we've exchanged it for two problems, one of which is unsettled babies and the other is flat heads. Mm. So you just keep burping them? Often you need to change the way you burp them. So I talk about in the program the difference between passive burping and active burping. And if you're doing 
passive burping. You're just holding them upright and hoping and hoping and hoping that you get another burp. And essentially there are two types of babies in this world. There are babies who bring things up easily and babies who don't. So the babies, I call them happy spitters, like I mentioned before, those who bring things up really easily. Milk comes up, burps come up. They're always so happy, but they absolutely stink. And the parents have always got to walk around with a towel over their shoulder. That's Poppy Victoria Pierce. <laughs> All clothes are yellow from her era. <laughs> they're, usually, they're usually the most settled babies that yeah. you'll ever find. And then you know, for me, for example, I've got three kids. I've never, ever been vomited on in the newborn period by any of my children. But they've been remarkably unsettled, have they? Remarkably unsettled. (laughs) I've never had to put a towel over my shoulder ever. And these babies, they smell beautiful, but my God, they're so unsettled. (laughs) These are the ones you've got to work really hard with, a much more active method of winding them. How nice is it like before you become a parent, you're like, oh, burps are foul. And then when that burp comes from your newborn, there is like this inner like peace that you go, oh, it's so rewarding. so satisfying. I remember during the newborn period times three, my wife and I would speak on the phone and the only topic of conversation was how many did you get? (laughs) What method did you use? What's your pillow talk? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, how things change. So what's the deal with witching hour? It is brutal. It's generally not an hour. It's about as big a myth as morning sickness is (laughs) because morning sickness is all day and witching hour is all afternoon. What's the deal with it? Why does it happen? And what can we do to avoid it? To, or just help us through it. Okay, so interpret what it means. So always look at what your baby's trying to tell you. So witching hour is not a necessary evil that you have to live with. What? It's not. Just like the four-month sleep regression is rubbish, you don't have to put up with what? it. These are things that people don't know how to solve and so they just say, I'm just going to wait until it goes. You don't have to put up with these things and anyone who tells you that you do is telling you that they don't understand why your baby's upset. So witching hour is always caused by something. So find the cause of it, remove the cause, and witching hour does not happen. In the case of what you're describing, the most common cause of witching hour behaviour is the baby that's not burping adequately throughout the day. You see, wind, everything from the stomach takes hours to make its way to the colon. Gas is not meant to be in the colon in such large volumes. You're meant to have a little bit of gas from fermentation and farts are normal, but when you've got a baby who's farting just as much as their dad, you know that it's not normal, okay? (laughs) And if the parents are ever commenting about, oh, my God, how much this baby farts, that tells me I know that they weren't burped enough six hours earlier. So if you're talking about, for example, a baby who's feeding four hourly during the day, for example, so they feed at 7, 11, 3, and 7, all of the gas that has not been burped up will accumulate, will make its way to their colon and will start to cause significant pain in the early afternoon, early evening, and then first part of the night. That's what's called witching hour. If your baby's experiencing witching hour, I'm telling you, you're not burping them enough during the daytime. So basically everything is gas. (laughs) Almost everything is gas. 
And yeah. almost every baby that I've ever seen is not burping enough. Okay. so And so when you reach that point, because I feel like I reach that point and then I try and burp nonstop for, until they shut up in the end. Oh, you can try and but burp it's too late. witching hour. It's, it's way too late. You miss the opportunity. You need to control, alt, delete at 7 o'clock the next morning. So do you just have to cop it? Do you have to cop witching hour if you've stuffed up during the day? Yeah, and look, life gets in the way sometimes and people have appointments and babies are unsettled or, you know, the older sibling has something. There are times when you can't burp a baby for whatever reason and that's completely fine. That happens. But I would rather it happen once in a blue moon than every single day. Why hasn't somebody invented a burping machine? Oh, I wish I could. Seriously, I let's do it I together. Could. Dr. Golly, you and I and Sophie on the oh, side. Thanks. I can come. <laughs> <laughs> we can all create. I'll watch on the sideline while you two become billionaires. <laughs> right, that's we'll come so on your podcast, interesting. Yeah, come I literally just thought it was just... You just cop that. That's babies. No, wind causes a lot of the most common problems, signs that we see in colicky babies. So frequent feeding not only is driven by unsettled behaviour from pain, but also the fact that at the end of each feed, if you were able to have a look inside a baby's stomach, it's only half full of milk and it's half full of gas. But in that baby's mind, they feel a full stretch on their stomach. So they think Mm. they're completely full. But if you were to evacuate that gas, not only are you investing in that baby in six hours' time, you're getting more feed into that baby at that feed. It makes sense, though, because my most common arguments in my relationship are about gas with my husband, especially in bed. (laughs) Literally, I said to him one day, I don't understand how you can have that much gas. Like, why can someone have that much gas? I don't think this is Dr. Golly's area of I don't work. know. I'm sure Dr. Golly has some gas too. He probably doesn't do, do marriage counselling on the side. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go back to babies, not husbands, babies. Does the uh, maternal diet generally help breastfed babies that are unsettled? Yes, there is an impact. Every single thing that a breastfeeding mother eats, the baby will eat part thereof. So we talked about mucus or blood in the poo. The most common cause of that is a cow milk protein intolerance. So that's the mother who's having too much cow milk. And that may be in the form of milk, cheese, yogurt. It's got nothing to do with lactose. So you can stop drinking lactose completely, but you will still produce lactose in your breast milk. And then the other less common causes of that intolerance and that inflammation and mucus in the gut would be things like rice, corn, egg and gluten. So sometimes with mums, we have to make significant changes to their diet to maintain breastfeeding and make sure that the baby doesn't have inflammation. While the baby won't show very overt signs of discomfort from that inflammation, it's something that we just don't want to be happening inside baby's gut, but also it can drive other things like eczema. Right. Okay. Mm. But if your baby's like poos are normal, they're just a bit unsettled every now and again, it's probably more due to wind than your diet or? That's exactly right. Yeah. And usually if you eat things that will cause gas in you, so cauliflower, chickpeas, things that clearly will cause gas in someone who eats them, they're going to cause gas in the baby. But that's not swallowed gas. That's more gas that's created within the gut. Mm. Yeah. So basically your husband's whole diet. (laughs) Great. (laughs) He has to fast. (laughs) My pleasure. Now let's move on to tongue ties. They are very controversial. What are tongue or lip ties? 
again, how long do you have? This is another um, bugbear of mine because it's something that gets way too much airtime for the problems that they actually cause. So tongue ties, just to tell you how much of a new phenomenon this is, you can't find a scientific paper that mentions tongue ties prior to 2007. What? And that was like last year. Yeah. Don't you reckon people born in 2007, you think they're about a month old? They're not. Just to Correct. Look that. <laughs> it's true. So that just tells you that this can't possibly be as big a problem as people are making out if we haven't been talking about it for centuries. Now, there are significant tongue ties, and that is a small piece of tissue, a vertical piece of tissue that acts like an anchor underneath the tongue. So some people have significant tongue ties where that little piece of tissue climbs all the way forward to the tip of the tongue. It usually creates a heart shape at the very, very tip of your tongue. And those people can have issues lifting their tongue off the floor of the mouth, which will then potentially cause feeding problems, most commonly nipple pain. For those babies, we recommend cutting that and doing it in a very safe and sterile way because there are blood vessels that can run through that tissue and there have been plenty of cases, unfortunately, where tongue ties have been cut and unfortunately babies have had massive bleeding problems as a result of that and can become very sick. So it's not something that should be done the old school way, which is how midwives used to do it with a long fingernail. Oh, oh Um, God. It should be done properly. Oh, my gosh. I'm concerned if that fingernail was used at all like helping with childbirth I wouldn't want that fingernail anywhere near me the old the old the experienced midwives the best ones they'll tell you that they used to keep their baby finger nail long and they would just swipe under the baby's tongue and cut tongue tie if they saw it so I will happily cut a tongue tie I'll do it in hospital I'll do it under in a sterile method I've got no problem with cutting them and I do probably one or two a week But the problem begins where people blame tongue ties, insignificant tongue ties, for problems that have got nothing to do with it. So, for example, the baby who is unsettled, who's feeding frequently, and you both know what the most common cause of that is now. Burping, gas, wind. Which is gas. And people will see a tongue tie and they'll say, oh, it must be the tongue tie. And that's a beautiful example of someone who doesn't recognise what the real problem is and is just attributing it to something else. Now, most of the time you can cut that tongue tie will have absolutely no difference to the unsettled behavior because it doesn't change how much gas that baby swallows, but it does put the baby at risk of infection and bleeding, etc. To make matters worse, people have now started talking about upper lip ties and cheek ties and ties all over the Jesus. mouth. Every day there's another tie that's come to, to light and it makes me laugh because these simply don't cause problems and people are cutting them, they're lasering them. And and worst of all, people are charging an absolute fortune for this. I've never charged anyone a cent for cutting a tongue tie. I I just don't believe it's ethical, but people are doing it with huge, huge invoices. They're cutting things that don't need to be cut. You know, the tie at the top of your lip, people talk about that reaches the gum in a baby's mouth who doesn't have teeth yet. People talk about the fact that it's going to affect feeding and it's going to affect language and it causes a gap between their teeth. What they don't know is that, yes, a very, very prominent tie between the upper lip and the gum does cause a gap in baby teeth, but cutting it does not close the gap Ah. and leaving it does not cause a gap in adult teeth. Ah. It's really important to know this and it's really important to know before you let anyone with a knife near your baby's mouth, most of the time, like 99% of the time, 
it does not help matters at all. In fact, the only time that a tongue tie deserves to be cut is in the first few days, maximum first few weeks of life where a breastfeeding mother has got significant nipple pain. And that's the only time where evidence shows that it helps and it helps with the mum's experience of nipple pain. It doesn't change anything for the baby. So if the mum doesn't have any nipple pain, but there's a significant like heart shape of the baby's tongue, you should just leave it because it's probably not causing an issue if the mum's not experiencing pain. Probably. If if I saw one that was that significant to cause a heart-shaped tip, I would probably look at maybe trimming it slightly yeah. and maybe that mum is being stoic or maybe that mum is not feeling pain but feeling discomfort and we can make that breastfeeding journey easier. I would love to be able to afford that to parents, but most of the time they simply don't need to be cut. And the funny thing is you can walk around town. It's an odd thing to ask someone, I know, but you can lift people's tongues. You can see they've got tongue ties. And half the time I turn around to the parents and I say, I'm free. I say, do you know that you have a tongue tie? Oh, you've got one. Jay, you've got a tongue tie. What? There you go. That'll cost you 250 bucks, Jade. Well, no one's ever complained about my tongue tie. Let me tell you that. Hey, speaking of cutting, I know it's controversial, but I just wanted to know, do you get a lot of circumcision jobs? (laughs) (laughs) I think you should start that again. (laughs) Are we talking about in his work? (laughs) You know what I mean? Are there a lot of parents still circumcising their children? You're speaking to the mums of five girls. It's never been an issue for us, but we know it's an issue for others. So what's the deal? So it is, it's not something that I do. I would always refer on to someone who specialises in, in performing circumcisions. And who are they? What are they called? Uh, so it depends who they are and, and where they're from. Some are paediatric surgeons who do it as part of their work. They're, they specialise in, in that area, in urology. Then there are some doctors who do it as a hobby. There are GPs who perform this as a sort of a side gig. <laughs> I, I don't know why you'd want to, but there are people who I'm do sure that. Oh, they're well-meaning, Jade. Come on. <laughs> and then there are also um, those who do it for religious purposes. Yeah. So in, in the Muslim religion, in the Jewish religion, there are people who, who have this as their, as their job and, and they perform it and they're non-medical, but they, um, they do it probably more frequently than doctors do. And I'm in no way laughing about the fact that people are circumcised because I'm about to tell the whole of our podcast that my husband is, <laughs> but I just am laughing about the way that I went about asking that question because it was very, very, very immature. But I know it is like a real debate for so yeah. many families yeah. out there and I guess I think a lot of people, uh, they're, they're torn between, I guess, like our generation, there would be more guys that are circumcised, I'm assuming, than our kids' generation. And then I guess people say, well, if my partner is circumcised, then I want my son to be circumcised. Yeah. But then I guess he's more likely to be around his peers naked than his dad dad naked. So I guess it's like do you want him to look the same as his dad or do you want him to look the same as his brother or do you want him to look the same as his peers or do we not care? And then that is the confusing conversation that people that have had boys have because they just don't know which way to go and a lot of them have ended up not doing it because the majority at the moment aren't doing it. Yeah, that's, these are all very, very valid points. From a medical point of view, the only reason to do it is if there is a complication with the foreskin. There are a number of conditions that can happen and obviously you don't do it until you know that that complication happens. 
And the other medical indication is if you live in sub-Saharan Africa as a protection because of the prevalence of HIV. Yeah. So you're far less likely to contract and pass on HIV if you are circumcised. So we don't have that issue, thankfully, in Australia. And so the decision to circumcise or not is either going to be a religious cultural one or just a preference one. And I have these conversations very frequently with parents. And I think the most important, one of the most important things, as you mentioned, Sophie, is, is to be similar to dad. A lot of dads will want that. But from what I see in, in practice, those who are thinking about it, they're not sure, they're umming and ahhing, they usually do. And if that's the case, I would advise doing it as early as possible. And when is it generally done? Well, it depends what the reason is. If you're doing it for religious reasons or cultural reasons, it's usually done within the first couple of weeks of life. Yeah, interesting. Something I've never had to think about. But, yeah, I know it's definitely a touchy subject for lots of people. Yeah. Weight and height charts can cause a lot of stress for parents. Can you tell us a bit about them? Are they something we should be worried about? Do they tell you when a bub isn't growing well or is too big? What's the deal? They are. They're a huge source of stress and anxiety and usually most of it unfounded, but they are very helpful if we do see a trend. But it's important to note that we're looking at a trend. We're not looking at an absolute number. So oftentimes parents will come and see me with concerns about low weight and we will just watch and do very, very little. And that's very frustrating for parents sometimes where you say, come back in in six weeks and we'll see what's happening because often parents want to do something or at least feel like they're doing something. But a lot of pediatrics is just waiting and watching. Unlike adults, babies are changing all the time. And that's one of the beautiful things that most developmental concerns and weight concerns just disappear with the passage of time but a lot of them don't, but we need that passage of time to see what they're doing, the way they they are behaving. It's important to know that the birth weight of a baby isn't always a very good guide as to how big that child's going to be when they're older. So when you are in utero, when you're not yet born, your weight is determined a little bit by genetics, but so much by the health of the placenta and a cord and also mum's blood sugar level. So if mum has gestational diabetes, for example, they will run a, usually run a higher sugar level, which will pass through the placenta and the cord to the baby. The baby will have more sugar. And just like if you had more sugar, you'd put on weight. So that baby, let's say the parents were both on the 50th centile for their weight. The baby's born on the 90th centile. There's no way that baby's going to stay on the 90th centile forever. Yeah. And so the baby might be born at four kilos, but they were, let's say, in quotation marks, genetically predetermined to be more like three kilos birth weight Mm. in the first few months of life they're going to drop centiles quite Mm. dramatically to get to where they were destined to be wow that's so interesting if you look at those centiles you you become terrified and Mm. and someone will say my god your baby's dropping centiles something's wrong you should be worried we need to investigate this we need to do blood tests etc etc all they're doing is what i call a correction they're just going to where they were meant to be because now that they're what we say ex utero, now that they're not connected to that cord and placenta anymore, their body is far more in charge of their calorie intake mm. and output. So they're more likely to hit the centile that they were destined to be on. So not every drop in centiles is necessarily an illness. And I can agree with you on that because every one of my child's weights are the opposite of what they are now, all of them. So my no biggest surprise. baby is my tiniest 
child and my tiniest baby is muscly tall like complete opposite so she was on her own sorry she was on her own rainbow chart because she wasn't even on the chart that's how tiny she was and now she's one of the tallest girls in her in her that was like poppy when she was born her head was on about like the 70th centile like somewhat normal and then by six weeks she was off the chart and under surveillance because she was so high up and we got referred to a pediatrician just to have it looked at and my husband and I walked in the pediatrician took one look at my husband and just laughed <laughs> and goes well there's your answer and he puts a measuring tape around his head and he goes yep as I thought on the 98th centile for an adult man and I was like okay good Get great out. we're out of here <laughs> but I was glad she was born with the head on the 70th and not off the radar yeah. because that was very yeah, thoughtful true. of her the other thing specifically about head circumference that's another big source of angst for a lot of parents you've got to remember if you are measuring the circumference of something that's by definition changing shape you're going to have a difference in head circumference over the first few weeks of life so a baby will come out cone shaped yeah the diameter of that cone in the middle is going to be much smaller than in three weeks time when that head is nice and round it's going to suddenly become bigger and people will come to me at two weeks and say, I think my baby's got a tumour because their head circumference is growing dramatically and someone told me I should be worried about it. The baby's completely perfect, completely normal. So you have to look at those charts with a lot of perspective and context. I love this episode because I feel like before I had children or if I was having another one, to hear all these things, to know that, you know, you really shouldn't be, because everyone does, everyone says you should be doing this, you should be doing that. All I'm going to say is all you need to do (laughs) is burp your fucking baby and listen to this podcast. And if there is a problem, don't Google it, go and see a paediatrician. Is that right, Dr. Gully? Am I in your good books? Oh, I like this. This is like my own private advertising. Yeah, I know. Say Jade 10 for 10% (laughs) off when you see Dr. Gully. (laughs) (laughs) DrGully.com brought you by Jade. We had quite a few listeners write in wanting your opinion, your professional opinion on breastfeeding versus formula feeding. If someone is really struggling with breastfeeding and they switch to formula, will their baby be okay? Please say yes. There is no question that baby will be okay. This is obviously a very, very topical debate. It's a big, big discussion. And the thing that makes me, that absolutely breaks my heart more than anything in my line of work, is the breastfeeding mother who's made to feel bad about the fact that she doesn't quite have the supply or that the latch isn't working and that it is somehow her fault and that she should flog her body more by pumping, by going on fenugreek, by going on motilium, should be pushed harder after carrying a baby for nine months, going through delivery, enduring sleep deprivation, trying to recover all of the hormone changes. The, the most One of the most stressful periods in a mum's life, how dare someone put more pressure on that person by making them feel, feel guilty, especially for not being able to do something that's not necessarily in their control or their choice. Well said. I have a very, very big problem with that. So... Is there an issue with mixed feeding your baby? No. The addition of formula does not undo the goodness of breast milk. Now, there's no question that breast milk is the best form of nutrition for a baby. There's no question. You'll never, ever find a pediatrician in their right mind who would say, no, that's rubbish, formula is better. What I will say is that exclusive breastfeeding should not be pushed at the expense of a mother ever. Agreed. 
Agreed. And I'd also like to say that, you know, water's better than gin, but I still drink a lot of gin. So <laughs> I think that we're all fine. I hear you See? as well. Yeah. I think that's great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad we can all agree. I think you'll also need to get a paediatrician to say what is better than gin. But no, in all seriousness, I completely agree. I think when people say breast is best, they're looking at things from a, like a pure nutritional yeah. value and that's yeah. just not life. Life is this whole holistic, complex, layered thing. And sure, the nutrition of breast milk may be better, but is it better to have a mother who is completely at their wit's end but their child's getting, I guess, the number one in nutrition? Or is it better to have a mother mm. that's enjoying what they're doing? And There's no question because a baby needs more than milk. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you've got a baby who's exclusively breastfed if they're not getting any maternal love because that mum is completely exhausted or that mother's suffering from postnatal depression or that mother is admitted to a postnatal unit because she's broken down. It's insane that we put this pressure on, on mothers. Look. I have to say, if there is something that is fixable, work with the lactation consultant. I mean, in the program, every day I work with lactation consultants. They're absolute magicians. They can change your position just by changing an angle or something, and they can work wonders to improve breastfeeding. But at the end of the day, if the supply is not there, who cares? Yep. Just feed your baby. Fed is best. Breast is great, but fed is best. And a well relaxed, happy mother and father or, or two mums or whatever it is, that's what's best. And I also want to say that even if your milk supply is there, but you just really genuinely don't enjoy breastfeeding, I think that's okay as well because there are times where I didn't enjoy breastfeeding and I started to mix feed and I became a much happier person for doing it. Absolutely. We have to remember that not every woman was built to exclusively breastfeed. If you go back in time to, you know, when we used to live in tribes, they say it takes a village to raise a child. We, do, we don't live in villages anymore. We live in these independent silos that we call homes and we do everything independently. So when we lived in villages, there were women who were genetically gifted when it yeah. physically gifted when it came to running and jumping and they were the hunters. And then there were women who had copious amounts of breast milk with big pendulous breasts, and they were tasked with feeding all of the mm. children of the tribe. Yeah. They they're the wet nurses. They fed 24-7, 365 days a year. There was no such thing as you feed your own baby. It was just you feed whichever baby needs to be fed. So by definition, there are some women whose bodies are not built to produce that amount of breast milk, whose nipples are not made to form the perfect latch. There are babies who have a particular oral anatomy, a high palate, whatever it may be. It takes two to tango and it doesn't always work. And when it doesn't work, my response is, who gives a shit? Just feed your baby. End of story. Mm -hmm. But the thought of trying to push this mother and flog her and make her feel bad about it, I just I cannot tolerate it. Here, here. Yep. I'm with you well, and everybody else, the whole world. Jade agrees with you, so it must be correct. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like the Heart Foundation tick of approval. It is. You have my tick, you no, have my Jade, certified tick. Jade's approval actually means more than that. It does. Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's on the front of, like, Nutri-Grain. So. <laughs> <laughs> is it true that formula-fed babies are likely to be larger and the growth charts don't correlate as much to them as a breastfed baby? Good question. Yeah, I think that's a fair point to make. I think that's true. There's no question that breast milk is 
the best form of nutrition in terms of it's just a hundred percent pure and clean and it's just full of nothing but goodness. Like there is no liquid on the planet that is more incredible than breast milk. Gin. And we haven't been <laughs> able to gin. And I didn't even say that. That was Sophie. As good as formula is these days, we can't match it. And so we have to have a bigger volume of formula in order to get the same amount of nutrients in. And that's why babies tend to put on a little bit more weight. It's also more plentiful. So they tend to drink more. And that's why that we can't trust the charts as much when it comes to formula-fed babies. Great to know. Newborn acne is super common and we all tend to get a little bit embarrassed when we like to show off our beautiful newborns and then they've got, you know, a little rash on their face. What is it? When does it occur? And how do we know if it's concerning and we should do something about it? Great question. I think it happens with almost every baby and it usually happens it can be as early as the first few hours of life. So if you go back, Jade, to when you were going through puberty, sure. you had hormones running wild, like a roller coaster, mm-hmm. sometimes high, sometimes low. One of the side effects was bad skin. The same thing happens when a baby's born. So they've got their mother's hormones coursing through their veins while they're in utero still. All of a sudden we cut the cord and that high dose of hormone drops to zero. But every single time they feed, they get another dose of hormone. So they have that same hormone roller coaster that you have when you're going through puberty. Wow. And they get the same type of pimple skin response. And when does it, if people are trying to plan out their newborn photo shoot, when does it generally wow. occur? Oh, that's a good question. But there's no answer. There are some babies who'll have it for a few hours and then it goes. And there are some babies who'll have it for weeks and weeks. But one thing I can tell you is that unlike acne that happens in teenagers, newborn acne, it doesn't scar. You should never, ever put anything on it, never squeeze them, just leave them alone. And the funny thing about it is that it moves really, really fast. So you might see it on the face and then two hours later it's gone from the face and all of a sudden the kneecaps are covered in it or the back and then the next morning it's gone completely and then the next afternoon it's back with a vengeance. So you can't really trust it. I heard you could squeeze breast milk on it and that can get rid of it. Let me tell you, breast milk belongs in the mouth. It belongs nowhere else but so in the So not in the gunky eye? And let's just so say the oh baby's God, mouth. I don't want breast milk on the eye. I don't want it on the skin. Partner's I don't want it mouth? I think every partner should taste breast milk. Absolutely. That, yeah. Nick strange? was mighty impressed. He thought it was sweeter than he expected. My husband didn't want it, so I squirted it from a deep distance into his eye and he couldn't believe it. Like an actual, <laughs> it was a full metre. I was very proud. No, I, it's it's um, it's one of those many old wives' tales that bothers me. You, you don't need to put breast milk on anything other than in the mouth. Thank you so, so much for joining us on the podcast today, Dr. Golly. You have been an absolute joy, pleasure, wealth of knowledge. So thank you so, so much. And we will have you back. We will have you back for newborn, what was it? The unsettled newborn. Oh, yeah, we will have you back for the unsettled newborn. I think we should do a real-time podcast for your next baby. Jade, delivery, babe, everything. I'm calling you babe now, not Dr. Golly. I am not having another baby, but if... I've heard that before. Oh, come you on. You don't have to be with their next husband. Her husband's had the snip. And Jake Gyllenhaal is in town. So if you are here and listening, Jake, come at me. Is he here now too? Yep, but we're not talking about that. Um, well, I <laughs> hopefully will definitely have another baby. Am I promising it'll be on air? Yes, Absolutely it will. Absolutely not. <laughs> I can confirm it will be an IGTV. Subscribe now. Thank you, Dr. Golly. My pleasure, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Bump. 
If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and give us a review. If you didn't, good on you. You can also follow us on Instagram at beyondthebump.podcast to stay up to date on behind the scenes and future episodes. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.